On the hunt for a new kind of wine tasting experience, North Carolina's lush mountains, rolling landscapes, and barrier island beaches form stunning backdrops for more than 185 tasting rooms. To top it off, the state boasts six distinct grape-growing regions that have earned the designation of American Viticultural Areas. To plan your trip, download the NC Wine app or visit ncwine.org. And I'm Joe. We're the NC Wine Guys. Welcome to Cork Talk. In this episode, we sit down with Haley Klepsik, the current president of the North Carolina Wine Growers Association. Haley gives us a brief history of the association and how it got started. Then we spend most of the conversation talking about the upcoming annual conference and other workshops and events that happen throughout the year, including Taste of NC. Wine Class with the Wine Mouths is back. Join us as they take us through the next chapter in the history of wine. This episode is made part and possible by a grant from the North Carolina Wine and Grape Council. You can learn more about the council by going to their website, ncwine.org. So sit back, pour a glass, and listen. Many times through our podcast episodes, we've had folks talk to us about the North Carolina Wine Growers Association. So today, we're going to do a deep dive into the association, and so to take us through that deep dive is Haley Klepsik. So Haley, welcome to Cork Talk. Thanks for joining us. So tell folks who you are and a little bit about the Wine Growers Association. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm Haley Klepsik, and I am the president of the North Carolina Wine Growers Association. I've been on the board and vice president for the last four years. This is my fifth year and my first year as president. I also sit on the board of the North Carolina Wine and Grape Council, and I am currently working with a new urban winery in High Point called Nomad Wine. Busy, busy. Stay, stay very busy. So talk to us specifically about the, the association, any kind of details about maybe how it got started or what the mission and, and goals of the association are. So I love that you ask about how it got started because... We know this industry really started to ramp up in the 90s and early 2000s, and it has continued to grow. So we were talking just the other day in a meeting about how long the association has been around, and no one has a defined answer. It was a, I'll need to look it up. (laughs) But we do think or know that it's been about 25 to 30 years, and so the association has been present For a long time, and I think that the association has a lot to do with the success and the growth of the industry in the state. The North Carolina Wine Growers Association has a purpose of education. It is a resource for new people getting into the industry or who may want to be in the industry, those who have been in the industry. It's a wonderful resource through educational workshops and our annual conference to help answer questions that anyone may have or just to get together and bounce ideas off each. It's really important that people in this industry talk because otherwise we may be repeating the same mistakes. And what I do love about this industry is people like to work together. They're very helpful with each other. They get together, they talk about what's going on in the vineyard. They talk about what's going on in the winery and how they make decisions. So although each winery is its own entity and somewhat competitive, not not in that kind of way, but just for visitors in general, they work together very, very well to represent this industry and to continue to grow it and make new discoveries and and things like that. So talking about what varietals work in North Carolina and who's tried varietals that are not typically found here and what about them works and what about them doesn't work. Things like that are really helpful. So it's great when people really communicate and have a passion for this industry as a whole and want it to succeed as a whole. So the Wine Growers Association really works to bring those people together and to give everyone a platform. So you mentioned 
uh, it's a good association for someone who's new or interested in in getting involved in the, in the in the in the industry or to grow grapes or make wine. So, talk to us a little bit about how someone might want to how someone could join this organization and, and become part of the events or whatever. And we'll get into the events a little bit later, but. Uh, talk about how new people can get involved. Sure. So our annual conference, which tends to be at the end of January or early February of each year, is hosted in Winston-Salem at the Benton Convention Center. And it is a... It's a fun time. I mean, we've been there. <laughs> it is a fun time. But um, what it is, is it it allows you to meet a lot of people, people who are speakers and panelists, but also other people that are there to attend and learn about the different tracks we cover, enology, viticulture, um, business and marketing. So all you have to do, you can easily sign up as a member online on our website at ncwinegrowers.com and you can go to membership. I believe there's a primary membership cost of $75 and then um, additional members are only $25. And that gets you to where you can attend conference. That membership fee is also part of the conference. So um, it allows you to go to the conference and attend workshops, but you do not have to be a member to attend some of our other work. So let's dive in a little bit more about the conference itself. So you mentioned the, the three tracks. So maybe let's talk a little bit about each of the tracks and kind of have an overview of what folks might expect with each track. Sure. So for our upcoming conference, it's actually um, in February. It starts on the 8th. It's a half day. We go through the 9th and the 10th. So that's going to be a Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. We do have three, the three different tracks. So enology, viticulture, and then business and marketing. So for uh, viticulture, we bring in uh, multiple people from within the state and outside of the state to cover topics such as how to select clones that work for North Carolina. What are new varietals that are showing up um, that will work well? We also talk about aging vineyards and how to keep them up, when to replant, things like that, because we are getting to the point where a lot of these vineyards are 30 plus years old or around 20, right. which means that you may have to make some changes within the vineyard. Um, we're also talking about uh, the 2A program, the H2A program, which is about having workers come in to help you with harvest and things like that, because that's a time of year where the vineyards are very stressed because if you have a certain kind of weather, everyone picks at the same time. So it's making sure that everybody has those hands to help get those grapes off the vine. We're going to go over soil and pH. That's a big problem here in North Carolina. Our pH can soar pretty fast. And so we like to try to find ways to keep that under control. We are going to talk about Pierce's disease and different vectors and vector management and all of that in viticulture. In enology, coming up, we're going to talk about cold stability in reds. We're also going to talk about the FDA. We haven't really talked about the FDA and when they could actually come into your winery, what they're looking for and that type of thing. So it's a new topic that we're covering that we look forward to finding out some new new things. We're also going to focus on uh, juice potassium, pH of final wine, and how to control and contain that. We're talking about some new things like piquette. Piquette is uh, a tiny wine, and it is made. Haley's doing air quotes. I am doing air quotes. I don't know why. Every time I say a <laughs> tiny wine, I feel like tiny needs air quotes. But uh, Piquette is really neat because it is using the must from grapes and rehydrating it. So it makes this low alcohol, light wine, and it's just really interesting and something different. And it's kind of, kind of making a comeback. It's yeah. something that's been around for a long time, but people aren't very aware of it. And winemakers are getting a little nerdy and, and coming yeah. up with all these new fun things, which is great. We'll also touch on meat and cider because meat and cider are what we consider part of our industry, a part of, you know, the wine industry. They're high, very closely related. 
mead is, you know, wine made with honey. And we see a lot of more meaderies popping up and consumers getting interested in mead and cider. And also what's great about it is grapes come in one time a year and then you process and you make wine. Well, in the off season, you can make mead. So it's a great kind of kind of project while um, the wines are uh, baking in the tank. I did air quotes again. But um, <laughs> while the wines are aging and all of that stuff. So I think it's really neat to, to stretch into cider and mead and piquette and talk about all of these different things that you can make from wine and honey and apples. Or not from wine, from grapes, sorry, yeah. Looks like there's also a muscadine tasting as well. There is. We're That's gonna awesome. do we're gonna do a muscadine tasting, which is gonna cover dry and semi-sweet. I think that the perception of muscadine is that it's always yeah, sweet. Right. And it's not that's no, not true. That's not true. There was a, a wonderful dinner last year that or this pat this year that was done at the Angus Barn. And it was a muscadine dinner. And it was shocking to people. It filled up. It sold out. It was wonderful. It was paired with different muscadine wines, dry, semi-sweet, and people really loved it. So we're excited to bring that into the conference. We also will be releasing the results of our NC Collective, which is a research collective that this is the this past year was the first year that we did where we told vineyards and wineries, if you have a research project that you need help with, we are willing to provide grants for that. Um, That came through the council, but was uh, managed by the Wine Growers Association. So it'll be neat to see the different experiments that were done and what the results are. Um, And hopefully those things can be put into action and used for, for future years to come. So you mentioned also business and marketing is the third track. Yes. And so business and marketing is really important. All of these things work together. You can't have wine without the vineyard and you can't have, you can't sell wine without the marketing and the business side to it. So we will go over things like TTB reporting, which is super important, especially when it comes to labels, what you can change without having to have to, to go back to TTB Um, And what you do need to have covered and what's important on your label so that everything is legal and good to go. We're also going to talk about modern advertising and what that looks like because it's changed so much. It used to be billboards and magazines and, dare I say, newspaper. And now we're looking at social media and things like that. So advertising looks very different now than it did 20 years. So we think that that's really important. We also have a very, very popular session, um, which is with the NCABC, which most of the time yeah. is like, dun, dun, dun. It's always super interesting. <laughs> yeah. People are sometimes afraid to ask their question. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. <laughs> it's just, it's all these things that are, are a little murky. There are a lot of um, antiquated laws yes. that still exist related to the wine industry that go back to prohibition. So they just don't make sense anymore. But it's really important to know what is legal, what's not legal, what you can do, what you can't do, and why, and how you should go about doing things. So that ABC panel is always packed to the brim with people trying to just find clarity on what is okay and what's not okay, related to all kinds of different. So it's actually a really interesting panel, and we sometimes try to do a workshop um, with that also for the people that can't attend. Um, but it's it's great. We also are going to have you guys present for us along with the girls, Jessica and Lindsay, which are wonderful from yeah. Linville Falls. And you guys are going to talk to us about social media trends because it does change. It does. You know, we went from Twitter or Facebook and Twitter to Instagram. Now you've got threads and X, I guess. But right. it's really something that we want to stay on top of to see what generation is looking at what social media, who you try to target and all of that. So I'm really excited to have you guys there. And I'm actually really excited to sit in on that session because 
you got to stay on top of stuff. It's very important. Yeah, ever-changing. Yes, and then one of the most important things in owning a tasting room or running a tasting room is uh, elevated hospitality. It's all about how a customer feels. And you can have the best wine ever, but if your customer service is bad, people will not come back. So it goes the other way too. If you have mediocre wine, which we hope no one does, everybody's doing everything they can to make great wine. But an environment and that hospitality will bring people back in. They are very drawn to two people. They like to see the same people at the winery and at the vineyard and tasting room. So that's something that's super important. We're also going to talk about sustainable packaging. There are the traditional wine packages, but there's also some different packaging coming out. You're seeing canned wine for kind of a more easygoing, laid back kind of grab a can and go to the lake or the beach or the pool or something like that. It's just kind of kind of cool. And then there's also, have you guys seen, I believe it is Carolina Heritage has paper bottles. Paper we haven't bottles. seen them in person yeah. yet, but yeah. I haven't either, but I'm fascinated yes. by this. Yeah. Um, I love wine out of a glass bottle because I love, well, white wine being very cold. And I feel like that bottle's conducive to keeping it cold. So it's super interesting to hear about this this new packaging. Right, and yeah. yeah, if you guys get your hands on one, let me know. I'd <laughs> love to see it. I think it, it's very cool. But um, at Nomad, where I currently am, we are kegging. So we don't bottle anything, which is really cool because it cuts down on that waste. Right. You know, it cuts down on bottles, labels, capsules, corks. It's really, really interesting. And it makes for a different atmosphere, a different tasting room. So all of these different kind of new things really, really are making an impression in on the industry. And like I said, we're constantly trying to grow with, yeah, with whatever everyone else is doing. Yes. Another topic that we are going to cover is the elevated tasting room experience. And that is something that will hopefully show everyone that it doesn't have to be a single tasting. There's so much that you can do at your winery that creates different experiences for people and people will find what experiences they love. So it's great to offer your regular tastings or your flights, but also those private reserve tastings, tours, things like that. Wine dinners have become increasingly popular with our guests they love sitting down and having that personal factor when when sitting with the winemaker or owners or employees that get to sit and talk to them one-on-one about wine. It's just a little more personal than a, a traditional taste. And like you said, the experience really matters. It kind of connects home with the wine and what you're doing to say, do I really, really like this place or is it just meh? Yeah, and it's every place feels different. And everybody's going to find what they like. And that's what is great about this industry is no two are exactly alike, but you don't want them to be, or they wouldn't be everyone's cup of tea. So it's wonderful that we have so many wineries in this state that all have their own identity. They all have their own personality and customers can go from place to place and find where they feel at home. And I think that that makes a huge difference to guests. They really want a place that they're comfortable. They love the wine. They love the people. They want to go to do these different experiences that are offered. And people will continue to return to the same place. But they'll also try other new places. And they can have more than one favorite, which I think we all do. Yeah, yeah for sure. <laughs> for sure. So uh, anything else specific about the conference you'd like to share? So you can go to ncwinegrowers.com and click on the conference tab and go down to conference registration. The conference registration is now open. We typically have 350 plus people and there will sometime be a cutoff. So make sure you go ahead and sign up as soon as possible. And there's also a special event that's part of that, but we'll talk about that on the, on the, after the break. But one thing I do want to mention, though, about the conference itself, not only are all these great sessions and lots of information, 
but it's a chance to network and see people that you don't get to see all the time and, and make connections and that sort of thing. And that for us is often the most valuable part of the conference. So, so it's a great way to get the industry together, uh, share knowledge, but also just to just share those connections and, and be with people. Sometimes like-minded people. We're so stationary in where we are physically right. a lot of times. We're tied to the winery, the vineyard, the tasting room. So it's great to get out and you see people from the coast to the mountains and these are people you talk to regularly, but you don't actually get to spend time with. And it's it really is a great time to see each other, get together, and enjoy talking about what we all love most, which is wine. Yep. So we'll take a quick break for our wine education segment. But when we come back, let's talk a little bit about Taste of NC and what that's all about and any uh, and some of the other events that the Wine Growers Association puts on throughout the year. It's time again for Wine Class with the Wine Mouths. Jesse and Jessica, welcome back. Thanks. So we're well into the 1900s uh, on our journey through the history of wine. So where did we leave off last time? Um, in the mid-1900s. <laughs> okay, Somewhere. I just said I'm just that. scrolling up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think we were in the 60s. Yeah. I think we are in the 60s. So we're still going right. to hang out in the 60s and yeah. 70s. Okay. Mid-1900s right. makes it sound so long ago. I know. There's so much that happened. Yeah, it's too. It's like, you know, like people on a horse, like schlosses and all that. So. Yeah. <gasps> Schloss is going to come back Ooh. before the end of the year. I just watch out. Yeah, there's a little Easter egg. Hidden. Oh, yeah. all right. Um, but yeah, so we're bringing it back home. We're ending up the year. Um, so we're going through the 60s and 70s tonight. And we're going to start our journey with Michael Broadbent at Christie's. Hey. All right. Yeah. So. At this time, in the 1960s, 70s, there wasn't really a market for ancient, rare bottles of wine before this guy, Michael Broadbent, became director of the newly launched Wine Auctions for Christie's in London. So Christie's had a, held occasional wine sales ever since the 1760s, so for a while. But in 1966, they decided to take it more seriously and recruited Broadbent. I guess he had some clout. Um, because he knew his wine well. A lot of things to say. He knew his wine well, and he was fiercely ambitious, but he was also an artist at heart, and he used his smooth, genteel manner to charm wine out of cellars where it had just laid around for 100 years. And then he could even charm even higher prices out of a crowd that became increasingly American, because Americans had the money for it at that time, um, from the auctioneer's podium. So... Fine wine had kind of fallen out of fashion for most of the 20th century. We know that England was driving kind of the tastes and demand historically a lot of places. And all over Britain, the grand houses and castles had cellars full of treasures that no one in those families was even drinking anymore. Hmm. So it was just not de rigueur, and nobody was really drinking it, and it just kind of laid around. And within months, this guy, Michael Broadbent, had inspected, cataloged, and agreed to auction the dusty gems of their Marquess of Linlithgow cellars, followed by the Earl of Rosebery's 19th century Bordeaux, many in giant bottles. Hmm. So he sweet-talked his way in there. And by May 1967, Christie's ushered in a new era of wine appreciation, and they kick-started a craze for collecting old and rare wines that enthusiasts just didn't know existed before that. And American collectors, like I alluded to, were the ones that were most impassioned. They were, and they were also the ones who could pay. Um, so at this time, a magnum of Lafitte 1864 from the Roseberry Cellar sold for $225 in 1967 money, which in 2023 money, that would be worth $6,677. Wow. Yeah. He kind of just kickstarted this whole thing. And so in 1981, uh, that sold for $10,000. So like you can see the price difference from 1967 to 1981. Wow. And that $10,000 in 1981 would be worth $34,391 today Yikes. in 2023 money. So, you know, you could, could have gotten a bargain back in 1967. But... And that bottle's probably still sticking around somewhere. I mean, How I... do you drink that? Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't be able to bring myself to open it. And this run of auctioning old wines lasted for about 20 years. 
and still continues, but in a much more subdued mood to this day, um, probably due to like inventory <laughs> running low, but also just, you know, kind of run your self out of the market, price yourself out of the market pretty fast. If I had $34,000 just laying around, I'm not sure that I would spend it on wine. Not one, not one bottle. Not no, one bottle. Not one bottle, <laughs> for sure. But yeah, so we all have that to thank. We have Michael Broadbent to thank for that. We're going to keep talking about another interesting guy, but we're going to um, come to America now in California, and we're going to talk about Mandavi. So a little background for, for Mandavi, but in 1965... Mandavi had this epic battle with, with his brother, Peter, stormed out of the winery. So at this time, they were both working at Charles Krug. Their family owned it, or they ran it. And so he supposedly punched his brother, ran out <laughs> of the winery, and he was hired by Azarthi, which we've talked about before. Who remember he was maybe eaten by an alligator? Mm-hmm. That's that yeah, any bells. Yeah, yeah, so that's where that Charles Krug first made an appearance on the podcast. This yes, time. he vanished yeah. in South America somewhere. Yes, yeah, yeah. So this is where Robert Mondavi left when he stormed out of his family's business um, and went with this guy. So within a year, Robert Mondavi had formed the first new winery to be established in the Napa Valley since Prohibition. Because hmm. if you remember, Charles Krug was pre-Prohibition. Interestingly enough, though, he wasn't the first to realize Napa's potential. We attribute a lot to him, but he also wasn't the first to embrace single varietal wine. Cab-stab. If you think of Mandavi, usually you think of Cab-stab. He used modern winemaking wine ideas, stainless steel tanks, he did all these things that were already being done, but it seemed as though he was the first person to do all of them at once. He's the one that got the claim to fame for a hmm. lot of these things, even though he necessarily wasn't the first one. But his family was tough. His father came from the West from the iron mines in Minnesota during Prohibition and managed to establish himself as a grape grower and made turn that into winemaking after Prohibition. Mandavi got into Stanford and... Um, by 1936, he was back home making wine in the Napa Valley. So this was just kind of his family gig. And he stayed there. Same with his brother, Peter. Hmm. At Charles, who gets punched. Who gets punched. <laughs> <laughs> what did Peter do to this? <laughs> At the Charles Krug Winery, where the family, the family bought that winery in the 40s, they planted French grape bridles. He, Mandavi taught himself about stainless steel and cold fermentation and aging wine and oak barrels. He really wanted to be the best. Um, His first Cabernet Sauvignon was the 1966, and he had to persuade the world how wonderful this wine was and why it stood apart from the rest of Napa. So to do that, you can't just be a good winemaker. You have to also be good at marketing and sales. Uh, And Mandavi was great at that, too. So he kind of turned it all around through all this, right? Like through all this family history, there's a lot of court battles. So him and his brother get into a lawsuit against each other. He gets exiled from his family. Like Mm. his mom basically disowns him because of the way he treats his family. Mm. It's really sad actually, but Mm. um, it's interesting. There's a book, The House of Mandavi by Julia Seiler. That's, you get all of the family drama and sibling rivalry and court cases and all of that. So if anyone's interested in the family, hmm. it's a good family drama. Huh. Um, so now we're traveling not too far from California. We're going to Washington State. And we're going to focus on the eastern part of the state over the Cascade Mountains where the air clears and you don't have all the fog and the rain of Seattle. And here it is very dry. Now, we got to back up a little to set the stage. There had been few attempts in the 19th century, but most of the grapes were for that they were trying to grow were for juice or for eating, not for wine. And locals said that vinifera varieties could never survive the freezes. <laughs> Winemakers like nothing more than a challenge though, right? <laughs> um, and there were freezes in 1949, 1950, 1955, and these freezes destroyed thousands of acres of vineyard, like I said. Winemakers love nothing more than a challenge, so somebody finally decided to go for it, 
and there were a couple of home winemakers that were egged on by America's most famous wine writer of the time, Leon Adams, who I am sadly not related to. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but he had tasted a Grenache Rosé um, made by a guy in, from the University of Washington, and he loved it. And so he per- persuaded California's most famous wine consultant, a guy named Andre Chelishtef, come north and have a look. Right, so it must have been so good. There was another home winemaker who was actually a meteorologist, Philip Church. Sadly, I'm not related to. (laughs) Uh, There's only two last names in all of history. (laughs) Uh, But he produced the only wine that Chelsea Chef liked on this whole trip, and it was a Gewurztraminer, and that was in 1967. Hmm. So inspired by this, two wine producers made their first wines in 1967, Chateau Saint-Michel and Associated Vintners, which became Columbia Vintners in 1963. So we've all heard of Chateau Saint-Michel, and they actually became the most famous brand in Washington. In 1968, in a blind tasting, the Chateau Saint-Michel beat all of the other American Simeons that they were competing against. Hmm. Yeah. And in 1974, in L.A., the 1972 Chateau Saint-Michel Riesling beat all the German, Australian, and other American Rieslings. So, Interesting. Yeah. So Washington was on its way thanks to Chateau Saint-Michel. And the wine writer that egged them all on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all right. We're going to go across the ocean now. So we're going to talk about Beaujolais Nouveau. Oh, the other, like all the way. Yeah, the other side. The, way. Yeah. the continent and then the ocean. <laughs> and it's almost that time. Beaujolais it Nouveau et Arrivé. This is uh, perfect timing for this. A little bit of backstory before we get into the fun story. Beaujolais Nouveau, what is it, right? It's a red wine made from the Gamay grape in the Beaujolais region of France. So Beaujolais is a region. Beaujolais is also a normal red wine if you just have plain Beaujolais. It's, the Beaujolais Nouveau, though, is fermented for just a few weeks before it's released. And historically, it's released on the third Thursday of November. Mark your calendar. Yeah, so like, how do they know? Because that's Thanksgiving every year. Well, it's the fourth Thursday, isn't it? Yeah. Thanksgiving is the fourth Thursday. So we have it it for a week ahead. Strike that from the record. (laughs) 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 You can't be American anymore. (laughs) It used to be the last Thursday back in the day. Yeah, how many Thursdays are there? At least four. (laughs) At least four. There could be four or five. So this wine is used making or is made using carbonic maceration. So the whole whole berries go through anaerobic fermentation, which anaerobic means without oxygen. Uh, it's different than any other wine you've probably had before. The grapes are loaded and sealed into a large tank. It's filled with carbon dioxide, and the grapes at the bottom are crushed just from being the grapes at the bottom of the container. Mm. They start to ferment. They emit more CO2. All of this carbon dioxide causes fermentation to take place inside of the berries. So the resulting wine is fresh, fruity. It's low in tannin, right? They just harvested these grapes in September, and the wine is hitting the market in November. So totally different winemaking style for red wine. That's pretty quick. But to get to the history. So if we want to put a date on the beginning of Beaujolais Nouveau, we're going to pick November 15th, 1974. Hmm. So we have a man named Alan Hall. He wrote a column for the Sunday Times, and he thought of a great stunt. And so he took two and a half inches of his copy from the paper to do it. He said he would be in the newspaper office on the morning of the 15th, and were anyone so inclined to turn up with a bottle of that year's new Beaujolais, he would swap it for a bottle of champagne. (laughs) So it was just like a little joke he threw in the newspaper, um, but it lit a flame. And so it's about 500 miles from Beaujolais to London, where he's at in his office. And we have a crowd of Brits that really wanted to do this for some reason. And <laughs> Nothing so they came to do. race. And less than three hours later, a guy panted up the stairs, can you imagine? Wow. Bringing this bottle of Beaujolais Nouveau and claimed his bubbly instead. <laughs> so the winner was a guy who started a dating agency. 
Oh. Which, who knew, right? Yeah. The so they had 70s, dating. Yeah. <laughs> Pre-internet dating. Um, he had flown his Beaujolais over in a private plane. Wow. Wow. So we laugh about this race. It is, you know, a fun part of the whole ploy of this wine. But really the idea of the Beaujolais Nouveau was to capitalize on faster distribution of the vintage. The... Um, Kind of started with the race to get these first bottles to Paris. In the 60s, races from English clubs rewarded the drivers who returned the quickest with the most wine. And supposedly, the police even showed up <laughs> and told them Hall and his cronies that they were encouraging drivers to, quote, race upon Her Majesty's highways. <laughs> they got in trouble for that. But... There continued to be a lot of media coverage, and by the 70s, it had become a national event. The races spread to neighboring countries in Europe, and in the 80s, um, followed to North America, and the 90s to Asia. Until 1972, New York was the only U.S. city to import Beaujolais Nouveau. Hmm. So all this was happening, but really just isolated to England. Um, That year, Minnesota became the second U.S. city, but now you all can get it, too. (laughs) <laughs> Go to your local Harris Teeter and you will yeah. find... Think of a George DeBoeuf. <laughs> yes, you will find your Beaujolais Nouveau for the year on the third Thursday of November. This phenomenon of Nouveau wouldn't stop. It took over the mindset of most of the people in Beaujolais too, right? This was an area that suffered a lot of poverty since World War II, and so here was kind of a gold ticket. What became a worldwide thirst for this Nouveau, you know, the first wine of the year's crops. You could pick, make, bottle and get paid for your wine in a couple. So they're actually getting their money back in the same year that they spent the money to make the wine. Quality wasn't necessarily the top of the priority list. It was all about the, you know, the glitter and the effects and the marketing and razzle-dazzle. Yes, that mattered. But by the end of the 80s, over 60% of Beaujolais production was sold in November as Nouveau. Huh. Oh, wow. That's interesting. So the craze is faded now. Now there's a lot of, yeah, you love it or you hate it kind of deal. I don't know if you ever really love it. You may just love the craze and the the fun of it. But we now have the Southern Hemisphere that's taken off. So we can get wines in November when before you necessarily weren't getting wines in November. But Beaujolais Nouveau still exists. And it's fun if you've never had it before just to taste the first wine of a harvest. Um, And if you think about it, those grapevines... In Beaujolais, haven't even dropped their leaves yet. And, you know, yeah. you're drinking the wine from it. So. Yeah. Pretty crazy. Um, all right. So now we are going to class it down a bit. <laughs> class it down from Beaujolais to Beaujolais. <laughs> all right. We're just going so down. We're talking, we're talking too much chunky. Or? You didn't know we could go here. No, we're actually talking Sutter Home White oh, Zinfandel. Well, there you go. All righty then. Uh, so we've all heard of White Zinfandel. We may have even drunk our fair share. Possibly. And we may be very conditioned to cringe when we hear it. Maybe. Yeah. Um, But white Zinfandel and blush wines became a wine marketing phenomenon of the 1980s. Of course, we got to set the stage and step back up. Uh, White Zin did not start smart or on purpose, actually. Hmm. All right. So setting the stage, Zinfandel is the... Like quintessential Californian red grape variety. It's hard not to imagine that people were thinking about making pink wine from it. And records actually show that they were making rosés from it back in the 1860s. And even Robert Louis Stevenson, author, Scottish author, liked it when he visited in 1880. Hmm. But these were all dry rosés. So there's a guy named Bob Trinchero who ran a small winery called Sutter Home in Napa Valley. It was not thriving, but Bob discovered a source of 120-year-old Zinfandel vines in Gold Rush country up in the Sierra Nevadas. And the grapes there um, from these really old vines were being bulked off for blending. And he took the whole 1968 crop, made some pretty serious red, and for the first time was getting glowing reviews for his wines. Hmm. I bet that felt great. How sad to take grapes from a 120-year-old vine and sell it in bulk yeah. for blending. They might not have known. Uh, but before this, Sutter Home had made up to 52 different sorts of wine every year. So they had a little of something for everybody. What? A different wine for every week. Um, 
And after this, after these glowing reviews, Sutter Home became a Zinfandel-only winery. So they were like, you know, forget all the other stuff. We're going to focus on this. Kind of a brave move, right? Um, but to some, Zinfandel was becoming old hat. Growers were ripping out their old vines and planting more fashionable wines. Like we've heard of wine trends and, you know, you go all in on one thing and you rip out the old and go into the new and then wine tastes change. Um, so people had started planting Cabernet and Chardonnay. And here, if you didn't think it was interesting, here's where our story actually gets interesting. Oh. Um, some say Trinchero, Bob, good old Bob, told a Sacramento expert that he wanted to make a white wine. And the guy said Zinfandel will make a great pale rosé. So some say his red was a bit thin one year, so he added the skins from another vat to keep the color and was left with some pink wine that he needed to sell. But they were dry, and he made a couple hundred cases of dry rosé in 1972, but struggled to sell it. So instead, he decided to make that wine fruitier and sweeter. Or maybe the fermentation stuck in 1975 and left some residual sugar. Mm. Eh, regardless, the people loved it. Bit right? fuzzy. Like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, people love sugar. Was it a happy accident? Mm. Yeah. And a few hundred cases in 1975 became... 47,000 cases in 1980, and 3 million cases in 1987. My goodness. Yeah. And calling it White Zinfandel was the marketing triumph of the 80s. So it's all about marketing, all about branding. Um, and we still can feel those effects today. Um, big brands still make it, and they still sell a ton of it. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, in 12 years, it went from a few hundred cases to 3 million cases. Yeah. It's massive growth. Yeah. Good job, Bob. I wonder <laughs> if this is the same Trinchero that has its own label now. I don't know. Hmm. Research. Yeah. Yeah, that brings us to the end of this decade. As far as wine history. Well, Wait. yeah. The end of the 70s. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what a busy, busy time frame. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, of course, we always have to round it out with some food pairings. So, um, we're going to talk about Gewurztraminer. Yeah, so going back to Washington State, we've yeah. done Riesling a lot, so we decided to go Gewurztraminer. Hmm. Yeah, what would you guys pair with a Gewurz? Thanksgiving. I mean, the answer to all of these next questions That's is true. Thanksgiving. <laughs> but now also, a Caesar salad goes really well yeah. with Gewurztraminer. We didn't plan it in our anything for this being um, our November podcast, but it is it really very Thanksgiving related. Yeah. It is, yeah. Yeah, because our next wine is Beaujolais Nouveau, which in my mind was released on Thanksgiving, but I guess it's released <laughs> in time for it's Thanksgiving. It's released the week before. Yeah, so you have time to get to the store. And, and then, you know, by the time I, I made it here, it was Maybe just leaving yeah. it at the store. <laughs> That's what I would pair it with. Yeah. I don't know that I've really found a Beaujolais Nouveau that I like. Yeah. But I, it's it's an easy drinking wine. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so, I mean, it does pair with Thanksgiving, yeah. you know, because it's a lighter red and not tannic, and you could have it with your turkey if you wanted. And but. slightly chilled, it's always a good thing, too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You can and make a nice, spritzy. Yeah, a punch, yeah. too. I mean, like a little Thanksgiving sangria yeah. would be good. Make that as cranberries and oranges. To greet your guests with when they yeah. arrive. Yeah. So. Just looking at it written, I feel like it might get the award for the most vowels. Yeah, mm. <laughs> I love French. Beaujolais, Nouveau. Yeah, there's so many vowels there. Um, I like the idea of a sangria or punch. Mm -hmm. uh, and then finally, a sweet rosé, a la white Zinfandel. Mm. Can we just have a red Zin instead? No. Because Zinfandel Day <laughs> is also in November. It's November 17th, so, mm -hmm. you know. But I could see a nice spicy dish with it, maybe like something Thai or something, uh, yeah. like a, a, you know, something with maybe a little bit of like piquant spice, nothing like herbaceous. Maybe. Or like Lexington barbecue. Yeah, that'd be good. Sure. Like, yeah. You know. Yeah. Like a you always got to bring that in, tea, don't you, so. Galaxy County yeah. girl? I can't help it. <laughs> blood. Or even maybe some type of dessert, like a pound cake yeah. or something, yeah. vanilla. Yeah. But also, it is an inoffensive Thanksgiving wine, too. Like, yeah, it'll go right. well with the slightly sweeter cranberry sauce and mm -hmm. yeah. turkey and gravy. And mm -hmm. A good foil for all that richness. Yeah. So, Thanksgiving. All right. 
Gobble, gobble. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Jesse and Jessica, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, happy Thanksgiving to you, to our listeners, and we'll talk again soon. Gobble, Thanks. gobble. <laughs> Find out more information about the Wine Mouths by going to their website, winemouths.com, or on Facebook and Instagram at winemouths. That's W-I-N-E-M-O-U-T-H-S. And now, back to the show. So we're back with Haley. Uh, so Haley, where we last left off was talking about the annual conference. Now, there are some other events that go on throughout the year as well. Let's talk a little bit about those. So yes, we have the Taste of NC, which originally started at the conference. It was a great event that we had on Friday night that showcased a lot of our wineries, and we paired it with a lot of our local chefs and restaurants. It was a great thing for the attendees of the conference to come to, to wind down after a long day of sessions, but we also opened it up to the public, and it has become increasingly popular. So a couple years ago, we threw around the idea of expanding it and moving it around the state. So we now host a Taste of NC annually. We now host four Taste of NCs across the state, uh, one being at the conference, which will be in February. But before that, coming up December 7th, which is a Thursday, we are hosting a Taste of NC Charlotte. So it will take place at the Mint Museum off of Randolph Road, and we are pairing 14 wines or wineries with 14 different chefs, and it will be a great night. Uh, it runs from 6 to 8 p.m., and tickets are now, now available on the NC Wine Growers website. The other taste of NC's, we just wrapped up uh, Asheville. This is our second one we've done in Asheville. It's a huge success, great event, wonderful wineries, mostly showcasing the Western winery because obviously we're in the mountain region and uh, it's great to get all of those wineries together. It was absolutely wonderful. We also have one planned for May, which will be in Wilmington, which will be the first time that we're actually um, venturing to the coast. So we're really excited about that. It's going to take place in early May, I believe May 4th. Even more impressive is that we're having it on the deck of the battleship in Wilmington. So we are really excited for that one. It's going to kick off North Carolina Wine Month. So it will be a blast. Uh, stay tuned for details on that. We do not quite yet have that completely set up, but it is in the works. Sounds like fun. And Taste of NC is always fun. Lots of great food, lots of great wine, and pairing them together and supporting local the local wine industry, but also local chefs is really cool. So yeah, and everyone one, needs to check it out. And it's one of those things where, I don't know about anybody else, but when I go to a restaurant, I fear having food regrets because everything on the menu looks so good. So right. I think this event is awesome in the sense that you get to go try all these different things, yeah. sweet and savory, paired with all of these different wines and there's this great variation. So it's a really great event. It's a ton of fun. It's ton. It's fun to go with friends, hang out and just drink wine and eat. What's more fun than that? Yeah. And it's, it's just wonderful to be able to taste some wine from wineries that you may not have visited mm -hmm. also. So it's a great introduction to local fare, cuisine, and wineries. Yeah. And I'm super excited that you're taking it around the state as well, because we've been going to the one here in Winston-Salem for quite a while. And it's great if you're in the Winston area, but if you're not, then it's awesome to be having these as opportunities. It is. And then we are using, we're able to showcase different wineries and different chefs from different parts of North Carolina, because we have wineries from the coast to the mountains. So we need to highlight and showcase those. Absolutely. So we're, we're really excited to be able to do that. So let's now talk about uh, some of the other workshops that the Wine Growers Association and any other events that, that the association puts on throughout the year. So coming up in 2024, we do have some great workshops. We will be doing a sensory science workshop, which talks about how to identify faults and problem solve in wine. 
That one's going to be great. We also have um, advanced tax and estate planning for wineries and vineyards. And that is also very, very important to understand what's needed for the vineyard, winery, etc. We will do a workshop for owners. We will also do a pre-harvest workshop and a tasting room workshop, which will include compliance which is always another very popular topic. It's pertinent to know what is legal and not legal and how you can stay compliant. All right. Sounds like some good workshops, especially for those that are directly in the industry. And certainly it's open for anyone to register if they're curious and want to go check check it out and find out some things. Yes. Yeah. And you do not have to be a member to attend these workshops. I think that's something that's very important that people know. And we do put those on throughout the year. Typically, they will take, we will take a break uh, August, September, October, because obviously we're all in the middle of harvest. So they are designed to be hosted around that that specific time of the year. That makes sense. Haley, thank you very much for doing a deep dive here of the North Carolina Wine Growers Association. Tell listeners where they can go to find out more information. So to find out more about the Wine Growers Association, just visit ncwinegrowers.com. We also have a Facebook and Instagram page that has upcoming events and information on upcoming workshops. Okay. Thank you, Haley. It's great to talk to you and deep dive a little bit on the Wine Growers Association. It was wonderful to see you guys again. Thanks for having me. That's it for this episode of Cork Talk. Thanks again to Haley. We're really looking forward to seeing her and the rest of the North Carolina wine industry at this year's conference. If you're there too, look for us and say hello. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. It helps others find Cork Talk and lets us know how we can improve. Don't forget to follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and threads at NC Wine Guys. Until next time, and remember, the cork only talks when it's out of the bottle. Cheers! is a free LLC production. This episode is made possible in part by a grant from the North Carolina Wine and Grape Council.